Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being with us again today at this hour. When it comes to purchasing a new home or refinancing a mortgage, everyone's financing needs are different. You may want lower monthly payments to pay less upfront, or you may have something else in mind. As a local home mortgage consultant, Stephen Lasher will provide loan options that can help whatever your situation is. Steve will help you understand your options so you can make informed decisions. We will break that all down for you today. Also at this hour, when the stock market plunged at the beginning of last month and earlier, buyers tried to delay deals because they had planned to use their Wall Street investment money to pay for them. Some didn't even head out to search at all. Some potential buyers have been waiting to see if the Wall if Wall Street falters, dragging down home prices even more, and some sellers are now asking if this is the best time to make deals. I'll ask the panel to weigh in on all of that and more. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate. I'm your host, Vince Rocco. And in the news this morning, construction is moving along at 685 First Avenue as it nears completion in Murray Hill in Manhattan. The 43-story tower has officially launched sales ahead of its anticipated opening later this year or early next year. And construction at 277 Fifth Avenue is moving along quickly as well, with just 13 floors of facade installation remaining. Victor Group and Lendlease are developing the 55-story skyscraper in Nomad on the corner of 30th Street. The tower, designed by Raphael Vinali uh, Architects, has a dark indigo facade made of reinforced cast concrete panels fabricated in Finland Multi. Layered glazed curtain walls were designed for optimal thermal and acoustical performance, and there is also a cantilever over its southern neighbor. The Riff Hotel in Chelsea has been sold for $27.5 million, and developers hope to build a new 12-story mixed-use building in its place. The site is a block away from Penn Station with access to subways, the LIRR, and Amtrak. Eastern Star Development purchased the site from Salt Equities last year. HAP Investment Developers has proposed updated designs for HAP 7, a sprawling 129-unit project in Fort George, Manhattan, located on the corner lot of 4452 Broadway. The new mixed-use building will rise seven stories and contain nearly 88,000 square feet of residential area. While filing, uh, filings indicate a mixed-use function, the new permits do not detail an exact allocation of mixed-use area. And permits have been uh, pre-filed for a four-story residential building at 168 Bradford Street in East New York, Brooklyn. The neighborhood is one of four uh, where the city is collaborating with the community to promote the development of affordable housing and create pedestrian-friendly streets. The site is three blocks away from the Van Sicklin Avenue subway station serviced by the J&Z trains. Labib Kronfall, I think, is listed as responsible for the development. I apologize if I said that name wrong. All right. Anyway, moving on to our guest star of today, Stephen Lasher is a sales manager and founding member of uh, Wells Fargo Private Mortgage Banking Team here in New York. Joining Wells Fargo in 2003, he quickly became the number one retail mortgage originator in Manhattan and is a member of the organization's elite president's club, having ranked in the top 1% nationally for the past 14 years. Specializing in new developments, condominiums, co-ops, and multifamily properties, he has extensive experience with borrowers and developers of all backgrounds, 
and property types having successfully originated and funded over twenty two billion in residential mortgage transactions throughout his career. Wow, two billion! This billion is becoming quite the number, the name these days, right? Fantastic. Prior to joining Wells Fargo, Stephen was an associate in the equity research departments, both at UBS Warburg and Morgan Stanley. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Interdisciplinary Studies. Maybe you can help this guy over here with concentration (laughs) in social and economic policy from Boston University. One of our favorite guests on the show always. Stephen, welcome. Good morning. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. Nice to be here. Good to have you. So let's jump in. (laughs) That's Matthew Cohen. Sorry about that. Thanks for coming, Ben. Thanks for coming, Ben. Appreciate you joining my show. <laughs> anyway, if you're applying for a mortgage or refinancing your existing one, you probably already know that there's a bit more to the process than just finding the best rate. And, you know, most of the time people run around this town, it's always about the rate, it's always about the rate. Not necessarily, but maybe so. Who knows? And that, uh, it pays off to do your homework and uh, to do the, your work up front and find a qualified banker. So we're going to talk about, you know, 12 important facts or steps in the mortgage process. I mean, it's it's a long, lengthy process, but yet if you cooperate with your banker, it shouldn't be all that difficult. Stephen, first off, you know, people ask me all the time when, you know, they ask for referrals mm-hmm. or we need to give them a, a referral for a banker. What is the difference between working with a, a, a mortgage broker or a mortgage banker? And is there an advantage to one or the other? Sure. Big question always out there. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, brokers really had a, a strong presence uh, in the real estate market, uh, I'd say, for the previous decade. Um, since really the credit crisis in 2008, so many of them been in, have been eliminated uh, from the environment. I think there are maybe only one or two in the Manhattan market. So, uh, in fact... Uh, <laughs> and in fact, I remember 16 years ago when I began, it was basically only mortgage broker mortgage brokers and at the time there's a competitive advantage candidly to going with a broker because they were able to shop to different banks they may even be able to provide more competitive pricing but that has really changed there's been a large shift uh the large kind of retail players like more uh, wells fargo where I, i'm employed uh jp morgan citibank uh, we actually don't mm-hmm. accept brokerage business through third-party channels anymore so typically a broker would be used if you were looking to facilitate something that was a uh, I would say uh, not so common, right? Um, so were they pretty much shut out of uh, of writing loans? I mean, if you guys aren't going to accept third party, um, you know, transactions, uh, how do they? Where do they place their loans? Well, I think the more more important point is that we have a massive balance sheet in terms of portfolioing our loans. So loans that are maybe more complex or fall outside of the the conforming Fannie Mae loan limits. Um, which is really nine for ninety-five percent of national loan originations are actually sold to Fannie and Freddie. These essentially quasi-government entities that were established to help provide the dream of of home ownership yeah. to Americans. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So banks offer a variety of home loans, and sometimes you hear the term portfolio. Sometimes you hear the term saleable. What is a portfolio loan for those out there who may not know and who is beginning their search and want to know all the best options out there for them? So a portfolio is is a loan. A portfolio loan is a loan in which we will hold in our loan portfolio. We will own that loan and we will not sell it in the secondary market. What that allows us to do is really have more flexibility from a credit perspective in terms of what it is we're willing to do. So while lenders may have a specific guideline as it relates to the building or the collateral or a certain debt to income ratio that we want to stay within, uh, when we know that we'll be the end owner of the loan and we'll hold it in our portfolio, it'll allow for more flexibility in terms of understanding the overall credit quality. And of the safe buyer. to say that a saleable loan is going to be sold probably to Fannie Mae or, or whatever at some point. Correct. 
in today's environment. Historically, there was a large market for secondary market to sell jumbo loans that were not sold to Fannie and Freddie. But currently, we're just continuing to add those loans into our portfolio. I mean, earlier on when I was purchasing, uh, buying co-ops or condos, whatever, personally for myself, 20 years ago, whatever, I don't remember the banks anymore because they've all merged and changed. But several of my mortgage loans, first original loans were sold. And, you know, I'd get a letter in the mail one month saying, hey, by the way, Vince, you know, your loan with Citibank is now at Chase or, or your, your loan with Chase is now at Wells Fargo, whatever. And I think, you know, what? so right away you, you get on the phone with your attorney because I'm young. I don't know what this is all about. Well, why why don't I have my original loan where it started, right? So what what's that about? I mean, I, that doesn't exist too much anymore. But really, what is that about? I think you see, I mean, we could probably talk at it in nauseam, but I think in today's lending environment, what you'll see, at least with Wells Fargo, is if we are selling the loan in the secondary market, which would typically be to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, we will actually retain the servicing rights as part of our agreement to sell them the debt. So you as the consumer actually would never necessarily know that the debt was sold to Fannie or Freddie. We would retain that kind of customer interaction and act as a service provider. In terms of portfolio loans, we'll, we'll always retain the servicing. It's something that we like to do. And there's actually a benefit to the consumer in that way. And because we do own the loan, we have more control. So currently, one of the things that we'll allow is what's called a recast feature on our portfolio loans. So in an instance where you, let's say, had a half a million dollar loan, you had a large bonus, uh, an inheritance, you had a liquidity event, and you decided you wanted to pay that loan down to $400,000. Historically, on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, you would not see any cash flow benefit by making that equity down payment and reducing your principal balance because you're paying over the 30-year schedule. Um, Because we own the loan in portfolio, we will allow you to recast that payment now based on the remaining balance and the remaining term of the loan, seeing cash flow benefit. All right, so I'm a new buyer, and this is the first time I'm doing this. And so, how do I get pre-qualified for a mortgage? Again, you know, a lot of our first-time, you know, buyers ask us this. You know, because one of the first questions we as agents ask is, "Are you pre-qualified?" Because what we don't want to do is waste anybody's time if we go to find out and put offers in and get offers accepted. That, oops, I forgot to talk to a bank. I don't even know if I'm qualified or not. How does a buyer first time uh, get pre-qualified? What are the steps there? I mean, just to, to, to dovetail on your point, I think um, the brokerage community has become so much more engaged, I think, over the last five or six years in terms of that pre-qualification process. So I do think it's very important that you have a group of partners around you, whether it's attorneys, mortgage brokers, whoever it is, but that should include a mortgage banker or a broker um, to ensure that the borrower is pre-qualified so that um, if and when that transaction comes into play, you can execute execute quickly. Um, I think it's important to have a uh, dialogue early on. Really, there are four components to a pre-approval or to understanding someone's ability to obtain a mortgage. Um, I I look at it kind of like four legs of a chair or four stools of a chair. You have your income component, your assets, uh, your credit quality, and then the collateral or the building. I think if you look at those four main components, uh, it's kind of pretty basic and easy to understand. Um, If you think of the legs of a chair, not all four legs need to be perfectly strong and intact for that chair to to, to, sit. someone to sit on it and for us to be able to provide a mortgage. So let's say income is a little bit weak, but your credit quality right, and your assets are strong. Um, it may be something that we could, could, could still pre-qualify. So I think it's about having a discussion, obtaining income as a relate, uh, t- obtaining information as it relates to your income, your assets, mm-hmm. pulling your credit. And then what I think is a very important step once we've actually issued the pre-qualification letter is to stay in dialogue with you and your broker, whoever's taking you out into the market, um, to really maybe check in with your mortgage bank um, to ensure that the buildings 
have been pre-qualified that we are lending there so that you are being efficient with your time and you what a wonderful point that is right okay but just quick on the on the pre-qualification sometimes i get concerned as a as an agent with that you know someone says to me i'm pre-qualified to talk to the bank i had a conversation on the phone and i'm thinking uh okay so you can tell this person anything right does it make sense for them to come with a with a with a more than just a pre-qualification banker says yes or here's my pre-qual letter what about you know people who lie how do we get around that I, I, as 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 agents i mean i'm sure all of you have had issues with that i mean i've had a couple and it's not fun because we you know we all kind of waste people's time so i get the process but sometimes i get a little nervous about mm, i'm not quite sure about this person i hate to say that a pre-qualification isn't worth anything more than the paper that it's actually written well, on that's what well, that's my um, point but the <laughs> fact is is the only thing that's really been documented um is, is that we've pulled credit right and so we right. do know at least right. that the the borrower has a historical payment you know, history that, that shows that, that they've made timely payments and they have the intent to pay. But otherwise, all the income and asset information has really just been a verbal information. So I do think that it's important that you take it to the next stage mm-hmm. of a formal pre-approval or commitment letter where we have requested all of the information up front. Um, quite candidly, I would say um, you know, when you have your typical kind of W-2 wage earner who has a salary, maybe a small bonus component of their income, they've been with their employer for many years, it's fairly straightforward. And I'd still want to obtain that information to ensure you know, efficient execution. But I would always say if you have someone who has multiple layers of income, um, deferred compensation, restricted stock, they own their own business. I think it's extremely important that the mortgage banker and the broker are working together to obtain that information. All right, we have to leave it there and take a break. We're going to come back and talk more with Stephen and our esteemed panel. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. 
If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. We are back talking to Stephen Lasher from Wells Fargo uh, Bank, and we also have our panel, Ari Harkov from Halstead, Matthew Cohen from CORE, Parul Brombat from Compass, Mm Sean McPeak from Halstead, Jordan Shea from Douglas Elliman, and Phil Horrigan is on his way in in a little bit. So, Stephen, back to the mortgages. What's the difference between a pre-qualification letter? Once we get past the, the pre-qualification stage, you get your letter. Now you get a mortgage commitment. How? What is that quick process between you know the pre-qual and then the, the mortgage commitment? And then what can we do with that commitment? Sure. I think the short answer is we'd simply obtain all of the income asset um, information uh, uh, from you to validate that that what you indicated to us is accurate and that we're going to evaluate it and re- and, and, and be in agreement. Um, and then once the commitment letter is issued, candidly, you're in a very strong p- position to go out into the market um, and, and potentially even make non-contingent offers if you need to. Um, the only open conditions on the commitment letter would typically be um, clean title, Right. Um, if you're buying real property like a condo or, or a single family or a townhome, uh, along with an appraisal of the property. So um, and, and to our earlier point, you know, really evaluating the collateral even before the appraisal, we have an extremely thorough database of both co-ops and condos um, where we can provide feedback up front on the, on the financial position of the building. Um, during the break, I asked Steve a question um, regarding how often there is a discrepancy between the prequal and the pre-approval, and um, I think that it's inter- it's really important for for our listeners to understand why that discrepancy tends to happen as often as it does. Sure, I, I think it's I think consumers or buyers don't necessarily. Um, know exactly what they're making or exactly how a bank would evaluate it. So I think we all know what it is that we're making. Um, but the, the one of the points that we discussed uh, during the break was simply that, you know, let's say you have a, 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 a Goldman Sachs uh, investment banker with a, a W-2 salary and then um, a, a bonus. Um, if that bonus is, let's say, a, ha- a million dollars per se, um, typically that bonus only, let's say, half a million of it is actually a cash bonus, which is what we would use to qualify. The other half a million dollars, let's say, might be um, vesting over a three-year period. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't use the additional half a million of income that would vest, but we would want to see that there's a two-year historical, a three-year going forward. So I think there are a number of layers to people's compensation that maybe they, nor should they, understand how a bank would evaluate it. So I think it is key uh, to provide that information to the lender up front. And also quickly for, you know, especially newer brokers out there who get listings quickly, which is great, congrats. Um, I always, myself, and I find that really good brokers out there do not, because of the discrepancy, do not um, actually accept uh, offers with only a pre-qualification letter. Like I'll find that they actually won't take it as a real offer until you have the pre-approval. Or in the case that they actually do accept it, they'll make the buyer get the pre-approval before they sign the contract, mm-hmm. just to you know make make it safe for the seller to protect them. Stephen, you mentioned before, and this is a biggie. You know, making sure as you're out there with your real estate agent and you're searching for property, it's really important to not only know that you're qualified, that you can get a mortgage and you can close the transaction, but it's equally important to understand or know that the building is qualified. And oftentimes, you know, especially in condominiums these days, um, people forget that, and they go charging down the road, and all of a sudden, you know, the bank says, "Well, we don't have that building approved on our condo approval list." 
What is that about? Because most people say to me, but I don't understand. This is an existing building. It's been here forever. It's been selling forever. It's not necessarily brand new. But why do we have to make sure that the, build, the bank had loan here? So what, how do you get around that? Because quickly somebody will say, well, then I'm going to go to a bank that, that can loan to that building. Right? Sure. Now, I, I mean, when, when I'm not enjoying my mornings on your show, I'm actually spending <clears throat> probably about 25% of my time evaluating buildings and collateral. Right. Your developers that we work with uh, to ensure that a building is financeable. So I think it's, and, and I think it's not just about, even though I'm here to discuss kind of mortgage finance and that component of it and the ability to execute on a mortgage, but I think it's also key for the broker and the buyer to kind of understand the complexities of a building. So one, you know, do we even want to go see this building and, and, and spend that time away from our families, let's <clears> say <throat> on a, on a Sunday. Right. Sorry. Go, go, go. Um, <clears throat> But then, you know, in terms of making an offer or understanding what those complexities are, maybe that's something that would give you a competitive advantage <clears> to go in at a lower price. Um, but there are so many different nuances to collateral in today's environment. Um, you know, new construction, it might be pre-sale. You know, how many of the the building's units are sold in terms of the building, uh, the lender's ability to That's lend. understandable, I think, more than, say, an existing building. But let me ask you a quick question. So what makes a building not qualified for your bank to write a loan? An existing building, not not you know, pre-construction, not brand new development. An existing building, condominium that's been 10, 15, 20 years, but your bank says, and we're just using you as an example, sure. your bank says, no, we're not, we, we don't write in that building. Well, I think, I think all lenders, candidly, um, would be concerned about maybe, let's say, a structural litigation, mm. right? So if the developer had moved on your five, 10 years into uh, living in the building and there's an issue with, you know, something, uh, uh, settling of the windows or, or of the facade, an issue, um, because we know that that could impact, you know, the homeowners association via, you know, a large capital improvement that might need to be made. Um, so I think that's a concern that, that many lenders would have. Um, that said, we really do try to be thoughtful in our approach to something like that. If the developer is engaged with the, the, uh, the HOA, if the repairs have already been made and they're just looking to recoup those funds and there's no financial risk to the HOA at this point, you know, it may be a building that we're still willing to lend in. Um, I also find that, again, on the topic of good brokers, as brokers who sell apartments and have listings, it, we usually know if there are issues in the building. Like if there's a, you know, high rented owner occupancy <coughs> ratio or if the sponsor still is holding on to units. Like I I had a client who I, a lot of my clients are J.P. Morgan employees. And so they all use Chase. No offense to Wells. And um, last week I took one of them to see an apartment. And before we went to go see it, a great Corcoran broker who is selling the apartment said to me, the sponsor still, you know, owns a lot of the apartments here. And so Chase has trouble lending here. I want to give you the heads up. Like, I think that a lot of brokers would do that. Yeah, I think what's been, it's mostly pre-sale too on that. Cause the building that I'm almost finished with a year ago, we had, you know, not enough pre-sale for banks to say, and Wells, I'll we'll say, by the way, was one of the first ones that jumped up and said, we'll still do this. And, and based on, on this criteria and you guys done it, it have done it. So that's, that's a good thing. On the heels of your comment. Um, I, this is an unsolicited plug for Wells Fargo. I absolutely always recommend you guys as one of my top banks for all of my buyers to go to because mm-hmm. it, you seem to understand the New York City market better than most of the other banks. Um, you tend to your your brokers tend to work best with us in order to get the deal done. Um, and I mean, I use Brian Cohen 
and he is just phenomenal. So yeah, and I'm sure you are as well. But you, as in unequivocally, that's been like my my best experience by far with with, with any bank. I agree. Thank you. Same yep. same experience here. We work hard to, to to obtain those types of endorsements. And can you ever forget no. a guy like this? <laughs> no, never. You'll get your tip later. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to us, uh, Steve, the difference between a conventional loan, how a big you know, and how big a jumbo loan in New York City can be. What's the most that someone can and people ask me this all the time. What is the most I can mortgage? Millions? Hundreds of thousands? What, what is the biggest? We don't set a limit on our credit policy, candidly. So um, it would really depend on the transaction. I facilitated transactions for $50,000 in our market. And we facil- I facilitated transactions north of $20 million in our right. market. So um, I think it's really about the borrower's ability to repay um, us on that loan and ensuring that we, we like the collateral too. So. And what's a conventional loan? So a Fannie Mae loan limit today, or the national loan limit, is $453,101. That would ensure that the loan was sold to Fannie Mae. Uh, There is a high balance conforming loan limit. So after the kind of credit crisis in 08, 09, um, and there was not really a secondary market to portfolio for portfolio loans, um, Fannie Mae stepped in and said, we're going to create an additional tranche uh, in high cost areas such as Manhattan. Um, and that is now 679000 and change. I can't think, believe it's $606. What's better these days, uh, adjustable rate mortgages or fixed rate? I mean, you know, we go back and forth with, you know, the, the prices with the, the types of <clears throat> marketplace. But what are, what are most buyers, purchasers taking advantage of today, adjustable or fixed? I mean, everybody, I think, prefers a great rate at a 30-year fix, but not necessarily. You know, I, I think it really depends on what your long, what your goals are as the consumer. If you really don't plan to be in the property for more than five or six years, I mean, candidly, a seven or ten year arm is probably a compelling option for you because and there's a lower own. interest rate um, on the adjustable rate mortgage. That said, to answer your question, we've definitely seen a shift, you know, toward the thirty year fixed uh, over the course of the last six months. Even as interest rates have climbed, let's say a half a percent, um, I think just a much more conservative play. Um, I think that you see where it was maybe a product that you saw more of the steady Eddie types um, who had a base salary with maybe a small bonus component um, leaning toward the 30-year fix because it was more appropriate for their financial means um, and the liquidity that they had in the bank. Interestingly enough, that hedge fund, private equity um, buyer who maybe either wasn't taking a mortgage historically or was looking for the cheapest, shortest money, let's say a five-year arm with an interest-only payment, uh, are reaching out to us and 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 taking thirty year fixed money because, you know, in the the high three percent range, I think they feel that they can um, achieve better returns by investing their capital and other through other channels. We have a couple of minutes left. What I mean, what in in your book of business and your daily activities, what do you see trending today out there? Anything in particular that's that's troublesome or or more positive? I mean, the market's kind of we've we've shifted to a significant buyers market but yet i'm still wondering what that all means or how it's translating what do you see what are you seeing out there you know it's interesting i think the market is really from my perspective really been broken down into the the different submarkets kind of your your kind of half a million to to let's say two and a half three million price point then three million to five or six million and then north of that um, and each market seems to have a life of its own um, you know, we're extremely busy below kind of that two and a half million mark, though it seems that a lot of those buyers are kind of shaking out of the market. Not sure that they're actually going to purchase, but there's still so much demand and, and limited supply that it seems, you know, 
seems to still be a strong market. Um, we've definitely, at least in, from my perspective, and I'm, I'm not a broker, but um, seen a little bit of a slowdown in that kind of three to six million price point. Um, some of your mid-block new development projects that are selling in the high 2,000 per square foot have just seemed to slow down a bit. But interestingly enough, we've seen a real pop, at least in the first quarter and going into the second in the Uber luxury market, which was so slow last year. And I think what's happened is, is we see affluent New Yorkers who have um, and sellers who are who are, are finding a meeting of the minds. The affluent New Yorker likes a good deal, right? The, the, the sp- and I think they've been waiting for that sort of possible dip in the market where there is a little negotiability, and that is what they're seeing on that higher end. Right, right. So, we got to leave it right there. We'll talk a little bit about that, especially in Brooklyn. When we come back, we are live from Blastoff Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York. We will continue <clears throat> on the other side of the break, so don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back, and we're talking to the panel. Ari Harkov from Halstead Real Estate, Matthew Cohn from Core, Parul Brumbat from Compass, Sean McPeak from uh, Halstead, Jordan Shea, Douglas Elliman, Phil Horrigan, LeaseBreak.com and Freely, and Stephen Lasher from Wells Fargo Bank is going to stay with us. So let's get right to it. The lack of affordable homes in the city has pushed the median price of properties on the market to new highs, particularly in Brooklyn. Home prices in the borough are quickly catching up to Manhattan with the median recorded sale price rising 6.7% from the prior year. This according to several marketing reports uh, last quarter. However, with large numbers of luxury homes continuing to flood the New York City sales market, overall home price growth remains modest. The Brooklyn neighborhoods of Car- uh, Carroll Gardens, Dumbo, Park Slope, and Greenpoint were among the city's top Uh, 10 most expensive in the first quarter of 2018 based on the median sale price, eclipsing Manhattan neighborhoods such as the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side. Uh, No surprise there. Park Slope was among the 10 most expensive New York neighborhoods for the first time with a median recorded sale price of $1,405,000. That's higher than 19 of the 25 Manhattan neighborhoods. So, Ari, what's happening in Park Slope? (laughs) What's happening in Park Slope? Uh, so Park Slope is an interesting market. I mean, it's a market made up of a lot of townhouses. So the absolute price in those houses is higher. Um, and it's a market that has seen an influx of some new product, primarily along the Fourth Avenue corridor where the development and the zoning allows for new development 
within the neighborhood, the majority of Park Slope is landmarked. So it's mm. low slung historic district. You can't build. Um, and mm. it is a, as a broker in terms of fair housing, I can't use the F word for family, but it, it is a neighborhood that has traditionally been sought out for its public schools, for its private schools, for, for its proximity to Prospect Park. Um, and because of that, you have larger homes and with larger homes, you have higher price points. So if you look at it on a per foot basis, it may actually not be as expensive as other neighborhoods, but in terms of absolute price, it's gone up significantly. Um, and one of the things that we've seen as a demographic trend as of late as brokers in the city, I'm sure you guys can all relate to this, is more and more of our clients who may have gone to the suburbs, Westchester, Connecticut, Long Island, et cetera, are now staying in the city longer and they're staying in the city and they're raising their children in the city. And many of them, while they do have dual income earners between you know, the nannies and the daycare and, and what have you, the cost of private schools are simply either out of reach or just untenable for them. And so they will pay up significantly to be in what they deem to be a desirable public school district. And they will pay a premium, maybe even overpay for their home because the savings is so significant uh, as compared to private school tuition. And although we can't talk about schools and all that fair housing in our practices, we can on the radio. So my question okay. is, <laughs> the school, let the school, we're allowed to, yeah. the schools are good in Park Slope. Are you so saying? Park Slope is traditionally um, one of the most coveted um, K-5 schools in the city has traditionally been PS321, um, which is now incredibly over crowded and their trailers all over the you know the playground and what have you um, but 39 wow. um, and I believe 110 and 118 are also incredibly desirable as well so the vast majority of the neighborhood is full of what are deemed to be very desirable k-5 schools and then on the private side you have poly prep Berkeley Carroll um, and another uh, a number of other desirable schools so it's been a neighborhood that has traditionally been sought out for families and more and more so that's coming into effect I also think one of the trends that we're seeing post tax reform is if you look at New York City this incredible disconnect between multifamilies, townhouses, and condos and co-ops when it comes to the efficiency of the tax code. So a three or four million dollar brownstone in Park Slope will have a nine thousand dollar a year tax bill. A three or four million condo in Manhattan will have a thirty thousand dollar a year tax bill. And buyers are waking up to that reality. I think more so now because the tax bills aren't deductible and the desirability of those brownstone and townhouses, which is already very high, I think is continuing to go up. Interesting. So we talk about Carroll Gardens. We talk about Dumbo. We talk about Greenpoint as also, you know, burgeoning, not burgeoning, but really super, you know, uh, great places to invest. But Park Slope still is a step above. I mean, this is what I hear from people. I'm not all that familiar <laughs> with, with the with the area, but I do love Park Slope. I, yes. Is there a lot more to do there? I mean, uh, I mean, I would say Park Slope is more, for lack of a better word, established. Um, so for one, you've got Prospect Park, which is, you know, second to Central Park and arguably maybe not second, given that while smaller, it is much less overrun with tourists and what have you. So people like to be near the park um, and Park Slope, because it's traditionally been a family neighborhood um, with the retail quarters on Fifth and Seventh Avenue, you're it's a very established uh, area when it comes to restaurants and you know kids play areas and bars and what have you. Greenpoint has seen a bump as of late partially due to the fact that the L train has brought down Williamsburg and Williamsburg mm. and Greenpoint have kind of been sister neighborhoods. So a lot of the would-be Williamsburg buyers are now looking to Greenpoint and that combined with some of the quality of the new construction, Greenpoint has driven up you know prices. So if you look at Sure, go ahead. I was just going to say, in addition to what Ari was saying, two points. One is, um, it's such a community feel in Park Slope with, co like, you know, like markets and co-ops and things that people do as a community activity. Uh, so I think that that is also something that is really something that even I find people who aren't that families um, who are getting more and more attracted sort of like the lifestyle and the neighborhood feel. Um, and the other thing is, 
this whole entire conversation started with the prices in Park Slope. And for everything Ari said, it is so important for brokers and the consumers out there to understand that numbers can be so, so, so skewed in a given period of time or over a course of, depending on what the closings were of a, of, of a quarter or even during a year. Uh, so it's really important to sort of dig further um, and then than just, just look at the numbers. Well, on that no note, the, there. The, yeah. uh, the prices are a little bit skewed. Like I, I was going over the uh, Park yeah. Slope marketing reports and the exactly. co-op, co-op uh, prices have increased significantly while uh, the condo sales have kind of languished and kind of uh, slid backwards a slight a little bit. But uh, I think like the most telling sign to Ari's point, to Pruel's point, is that the the uh, three-bedroom market uh, sales tripled uh, over the last quarter. So that's you know, that's a good go. indicator. Also, even though Carroll Gardens is great and a lot of those neighborhoods that you just mentioned, the 2-3 goes to Grand Army Plaza mm-hmm. and Park Slope. And mm-hmm. that's how a lot of people get around, especially back to Manhattan. That's work. what I like best about it because it is mm-hmm. easier for me to get there. Anyway, moving mm-hmm. on. When the stock market plunged last month, buyers <laughs> tried to delay deals because they had planned to use their Wall Street investment money <clears> to, pu- to pay for them, as I said earlier in the show. Some didn't even head out to search at all. Although not all agents, brokers, and salespeople have um, seen deals delayed, many are assessing what the presumed plateau or drop-off on Wall Street could mean for local real estate. And they have had time to think, given that buyers and sellers seem interested in waiting for clarity before rushing into transactions. Important, (coughs) waiting for clarity, whatever that means. (laughs) Many New York economists anticipate the stock market leveling off and maybe declining slightly. Some say the mood has been reacting to presumptions about how the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates possibly again, and describe the stock market as a bit overvalued in terms of how it prices uh, compare to earnings and corporate profits. Some potential buyers have been waiting to see if Wall Street falters, dragging down home prices. That is their thought. And some sellers are asking if this is the best time to be listing and to make deals. So my question to all of you, because we all play in the same playground here, this town is based on Wall Street money. All, you know, For the most part, you know, by and large, you know, we are affected by Wall Street money. What's happening with these big bonuses that were doled out between February, March, and April and May of this year? Where are they spending it or are they spending it? And if not, why not? I'm sorry, Vinci, but I don't agree with you. I, I think that <laughs> I think that the city has become more and more a, a tech city, actually. I think that you see more and more bankers going to Google. Um, WeWork is expanding like crazy. Speaking of Brooklyn, they're going to the Navy Yards and um, at the a bunch of the panels at the Real Deal Forum yesterday, we're talking about uh, I'm going to screw up his name, but Bjark Angles or his name. So he's, um, we work hired him as their chief architect to create all their offices in New York. So I think that a lot of that community will be big buyers throughout the next few years. Um, but outside of just regular variables in the market, I I mean, (laughs) listing, Around Memorial Day is probably a bad time of the year well, anyway. Well, I don't know you, if I would. You, you say big buyers in the next few years. I don't disagree with that. However, what, you know, today, you know, where, where's the tradition? And we are in a buyer's market today. So this is what I'm confused about. Technically, you know, the, the, the land has shifted to, you know, more to the buyer's side where it should be more sweeter deal for them, et cetera. But why, you know, and they have all this bonus money. Why aren't they spending I, it? Well, I, there's no urgency. I mean, I yeah, mean, yeah. I, there's I, no, because I just had a buyer who I was working with for a few weeks who's a long-term client of mine for looking for another apartment. And she was like, 
I'm going to actually, I think I'm going to wait till next year because the market's definitely not going up. So she was like, even if it stays the same, I'll buy next year. And in hopes, it'll. she thinks it'll go down. Yeah, I, I mean, think some a lot of, the, of people feel that way. Some of like the feedback I've been getting is I have a foreign buyer who um, has been looking to purchase since uh, late 2016. And he's just telling me that he's getting between 8 and 12% with his, you know, uh, you know, as wealth manager right now, and that it'd be silly to buy something for $3 million in his opinion. And then, you know, you have the local finance people that are just saying the market's going up or I'm making amazing gains right now. Why would I take a down payment off down payment out of, you know, my portfolio and, and plunk it into a piece of real estate where they, they look at the the gains in real estate a lot differently than the stock market. They kind of just look at it as a year over year when it's really not, it's more of like a long-term thing. And especially the luxury market. I mean, now that you don't, have tax abatements mostly. Um, obviously, there are pockets, but um, you know the good brokers out there are advising their clients: if you're not holding that thing for five to seven years, um, you're not going to make a profit. So, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, one of the best out, like Rafael De Niro, recently said in an article, he was like, they advise their clients that if they're not holding that thing for five seven years, they advise them to wait. Yeah, well, I mean, this is not really the 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 climate for investors to come here and get a four or five, you know, percent cap rate on and on whatever because they can't even get the rents these days. But you're right. I mean, this is a five to seven year hold. But I I don't know in all the years that I'm in this business, I don't know of anyone personally who has lost money in New York real estate, and maybe that's the reason. But also, you know, you can still buy in markets like this. Uh, smart. How many of you are seeing multiple offers on your listings? I have all of a sudden in the, in the last two to three weeks, and then half of them just disappear without a trace, and then half of them will <laughs> try and negotiate more with you. And then it's like, well, and you can now you can see it coming. In the past, you didn't necessarily know what was happening, but now you can see it coming. What is I've, what's going on? Depends on the property, though. Yeah, I mean, I've seen yeah, it. I've true. seen I've seen the same thing, Vince. Uh, we, I had offer come back, and we sent out a deal sheet. Uh, yesterday on um, on a two and two bed two and a half bath in Midtown, and they had made their initial offer uh, on March first. And we sent out a deal sheet yesterday, so people are being really slow and deliberate. Um, there isn't a sense of urgency, like Maddie was saying. Uh, so I think that people are being patient, and buyers are kind of paying attention to the media. I think, I think too, people are putting multiple bids in in multiple places. Yeah, yes. and they are shopping. Uh, Absolutely. Properties. If you're a general buyer and you're not really in love with this thing or that thing and there's no particular need for you to do anything, then why not bid at three or four different apartments and see which seller breaks first? The, uh, I mean, but, 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 but yeah, I get that. And you're 1,000% correct. However, I sit back and say, you know, it used to come down to or it should come down to I want this apartment. So if I'm identifying three or four of them and I'm <clears> bidding in whatever one comes back my way, I'm going to choose. Well, which is you love all of them equally? Right. I mean, but that I think, doesn't make sense to but me. But I think this market is bringing that out in people. I think having inventory, like Jordan was saying, is making people say, I can love a couple apartments. I can mm-hmm. like a couple of buildings. I mean, and I'd love the deal as much as I'd love the apartment. Exactly. Yeah. And like, I think the, consumerism has <clears throat> changed vi- drastically, yes. whereas people did not have exposure to thousands of apartments before. They had exposure to what I showed you on Sunday. <laughs> now you look all day long on Street Easy and realize I don't have my dream apartment, even if I spend my entire life savings on it. I was going to say also, if you see prices continuing to come down and you're a buyer, 
that makes you nervous because you're looking on Street Easy, you're looking on these websites, you're seeing prices come down and you're thinking, well, wait, is this a good deal for me? If I wait, the price is going to come down. And it makes you nervous, especially to bid before that first price adjustment too, if you're a buyer. you know. Uh, so. My response to those buyers is you, you want to be – you want to be the the person on the quarterly market report who achieved that discount because you never know when it's going to come roaring back. I think I think we have a lot of pent up demand in the market, and that's why we've seen the high end kind of lurch forward. But I, I really feel like this winter kind of slowed things down, and our buying season will be extended through the fall. All right, I'll we got it. We have to leave it there. Take up, take it up after the break. Sorry, <clears throat> this is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. I agree. All right, everybody, we are back with Ari Harkov, Matt Cohen, Peru Brombat, Sean McPeak, Jordan Shea, and Phil Horrigan. So outdoor space is not all concrete and asphalt in New York City. Many New Yorkers get to step outside for morning coffee on a landscape terrace or to dine al fresco in a leafy private backyard. In fact, one in seven residences sold in the city last year included some sort of outdoor private space. Access to private outdoor space comes at a price. The good news is that the cost per square foot for outdoor space is generally less than the cost 
of interior space. So what is the cost and how does it affect the overall pricing of the apartment? How do you price an apartment when you have outdoor space, large or small? Big controversy. <laughs> no, um, I have an opinion, but go for it. I, I have a very, very strong opinion, <laughs> so I want to hear your strong no, opinion after. No, all um, welcome. So I I believe appraisers do it differently than how I would do it when I'm a when I'm I guess comping out a place. I believe appraisers do ten percent. I believe ten percent of the outdoor. I space. believe of yeah. In other words, ten percent. They say ten percent of the outdoor square footage. <coughs> Uh, or they say it's worth 10% of the interior square footage. In other words, if you have 100 square feet outside, they would say that's worth 10 interior. I think that's way too low, way too low. And I, through my experience meeting- Well, appraisers, I mean, come on. Right, but they have, the, they're <laughs> supposed to be based on real truth and theory, right? But I do think in, in New York City, there's some differences. So over the course of my 14-year career, I analyzed apartments that sold and you compare them. If they have outdoor space, you compare them to apartments that sold, like say, right next door without the outdoor space. And it seems to me that the number that I use, it's pretty good, you have to still adjust it, is one-third. That's the number that I use. So one-third of the exterior, or I should say it's worth one-third of the interior. So in other words, if you have Very 300... conservative. It is. But if you have 300 outdoor, that's worth 100 indoor. Now, I would adjust for that. But I got to tell you, sometimes you have these little balconies. Yeah, that it's exactly. not worth 50%. That, that's not worth it. You I, all right, so I think 50 is high. If some people say 50. I think 50 is I say 50. So here's what I would say. I would say I think the range is 20 to 50. But I think there's a lot of nuance in how you price it. Mm-hmm. So for one, we think about what are the views. You know, a roof deck with incredible views is going to be worth more than a roof deck overlooking, let's say, you know, brick wall. Number one. Number two, you're going to think about where it is adjacent to the apartment. So mm-hmm. uh, outdoor space adjacent to the living room is much more valuable than outdoor space adjacent to a master bedroom where you've got to walk through the bedroom to get to it. Um, and then number three, there's sort of an absolute price. And what is this worth? Like a small balcony may be worth 25, 30 grand in a new development in Brooklyn as an example. Mm-hmm. I don't care about the square footage. It's kind of like that's what it adds. Mm-hmm. Um, rooftop cabanas. So we sell rooftop cabanas in a lot of buildings. There's a market for those cabanas because they sell within the buildings. So you think about absolute price and can buyers finance them and so on and so forth. So I think there are a lot of nuances that appraisers, to your point, miss um, and a lot of buyers miss. I mean, I had literally an email this morning from one of our developers. Well, I've got a 600 square foot outdoor space. So isn't that worth like $300,000? Well, no, not in your sub market. It's not. And here's why, because your buyer is not going to necessarily pay the same premium as in another market. So I think this is one of those pieces where it doesn't like totally fit into an Excel spreadsheet and you've got to know the market. Well. Also on the luxury end, um, for <clears throat> example, there's a apartment on the market right now, 10 Madison Square Park West, um, is a penthouse unit, interior square footage, if I may, I'm going off the top of my mind, but it's an incredible apartment, um, which has about, I think, less than 3,000 square foot interior with almost as much square footage exterior. And that is when it really gets tricky because after a certain amount of outdoor space, like 1,000 square feet, it it also diminishes in value even when you're on Madison Square Park with because it's just you really don't need that much. I mean, it's... it's diminishing returns. It is. Yeah. It is, absolutely. Well, that, and so that Ari also said needs the to same be... Thing. Basically, absolutely. it really depends. But according yeah. to Jonathan Miller... Uh, the CEO of Miller Samuel, he says uh, they look at it between one fourth to one half of the cost. Yeah. Basically, what you said. And right, they're probably the, the most accurate appraisers, space. in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely, sure. I, I agree with Ari, and it's not a spreadsheet issue. No, no at all. it's not at all. No, it should not be. Well, on the heels of that, real estate is always about competition, but sellers are facing bigger challenges now. Some brokers, several brokers say that there is steeper competition for buyers than in the past. There are simply fewer buyers out there, but those buyers are in the driver's seat. 
Other signs of the times, bidding wars are way down to a five-year low this past quarter, and low-ball offers are coming in, just as we talked about before, and multiple bids are coming in. With those factors in mind, uh, it is more crucial than ever to price a listing correctly, so say the brokers, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so how are we doing with pricing overall? I think we have a lot of overpriced departments because I think we have a lot of sellers who are stuck on 2015 pricing and can't acquiesce to today's reality. And I think I said this, I think on the last show I was on, but it's sort of perception in our market drives reality. So you've got a million dollar apartment. The seller says, I want one, two for it. They price it at 1.2. It sits. They drop the price to one, one. It sits even more. On streeties, you see red down arrows next to every listing. And the buyers say the market is soft. Why should I bid? The market's going to go down further. And perception drives reality. And the market does go down further. If that seller had priced at $9.99 to begin with, they'd have a bidding war. And then the buyers would be saying, wow, the market's on fire. I've got to jump in and make a bid. So I think there's a clear disconnect. Um, Sellers have, and all of us as human beings, have a very difficult time accepting when our baby is worth less than a similar baby was two years ago. Well, I think a huge issue with pricing right now is that Sellers are always catching up to pricing. Yes. They are never ahead of pricing. I think that you should comp it for what it actually is and then reduce it by 5% and then list it if you can get that lucky. But people are always, well, you know, if the average listing discount is 10 to 12%, yep. that means that doesn't, that's not an accurate pricing strategy. Yep. But that is what I hear over and over and over again is let me overvaluate my apartment by a minimum of 10% because mm-hmm. I know – I'm going to get off of last asking price between five and 10. Well, as I already said too before, you know, somebody says it's worth a million too, but it's really worth a million. So you want to price it a million, but they want a million too. I think gone are the days where, you know, and I try and tell this to my sellers today, you can't, because they all say, let's price it a little higher. We need some wiggle room. We want to come down, you know, make, you know, with, with offers, whatever. But what I'm finding in, in, in my listings is that people don't want to make offers on something that they feel is overpriced. If you price it at a million, you may get a little lower, but you're going to get closer to that 1 million than you are going to at at the million two mark. That's a really tough conversation to have with people because they just don't want to hear it. That's a percentage question. That's not a $200,000 question. That is a uh, 20% overpriced question. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. really what you're looking at. If you're 20% overpriced, I'm not even going to bother showing it. Right. Agreed. And, and I think that Jordan brings up a good point in where it's not always the seller. Like I keep on finding in this market mm-hmm. that it's the broker. Like yes. don't be yeah. that broker who sticks to a higher number <clears throat> because you want the listing or worse, do your homework. Mm-hmm. Like do your percentage homework. Mm-hmm. It's not that difficult. And and I think that <clears throat> brokers just as much as sellers are actually affecting negatively <laughs> the perception. Of the You're absolutely right. right. And sometimes yeah. the market changes and the broker doesn't realize it. Okay, and with that, we're out of time. That's it for me. That's our show for today. Thanks to my guest, Steve Lasher, and the panel, as always. Always remember how wonderful life is while you are in this world. Thank you, Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Be kind to one another for all of us at Voice America all around the world. Thanks for joining us, and I will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.